0: I'm James Ingram, and welcome to Make My Logo Bigger, where we speak with creatives in the ad business. This week, we are excited to sit with a true communications and strategy veteran with two decades of experience building some of our region's leading brands, our friend, Mike Bardsley. Formerly the vice president and partner of Revolve Branding, Inc., Mike is a go-to resource to facilitate groups, coach, launch new ventures, merge brands, articulate strategy, identify and implement priority tactics to help build strong brands and strong cultures. These skills carry over to Triangle Strategies, where Mike now sits as COO and is tasked with managing existing business, developing new opportunities, and plays a leading role facilitating leaders' forum cohorts. On top of all that, Mike is an executive on the board of directors for the Nova Scotia Salmon Association, has represented Nova Scotia twice at the briar for curling, and is a proud husband and father of two children. Mike, we have a lot to talk about. Welcome.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: It's nice Man, to see here yeah uh, i'm excited i'm excited for this one you and i've known each other a long time so this is this is great thanks for doing this making the time
1: yeah it's my pleasure
0: so mike why don't we start with how you got to this point professionally and personally and what has this journey been like so far how did i get here i
1: felt like it was a process drove your truck sorry yeah i got here with my truck my dog's probably doing okay in the truck um it was a process of elimination for me I, Went to St. Mary's and I always felt drawn to creative endeavors, even though I couldn't really put pen to paper myself or never train myself to uh, use a camera or things along those lines. But I knew what I didn't want to do was the finance side or the accounting side, but I loved getting in there and seeing advertising and seeing how that business worked, and working with businesses to be able to turn their business objectives into some form of artwork that Compelled people to buy something or subscribe to it or believe in something. And I, I really, really enjoyed that.
0: Your degree in St. Mary's was in marketing or was it, what commerce. was it in? Commerce. Pacific, commerce. Be yeah. calm.
1: And I took a minor in philosophy. Wow. That was my major. Was it? Yeah. That might say more about you than it does, does. about me. Yeah. yeah. I love philosophy. I thought it was great. I thought it was a really nice diversion. I liked yeah.
0: It. No, I liked it too. I. Uh, it's funny because uh, the liberal arts stuff that I did somehow, I thought it was useless, but it's been, it's been very effective in ways I can't really articulate, but it has been very effective in my... my
1: I do think we overvalue post-secondary education and the degree and the GPA. I mean, it's important to go through that, but I always tell students that I used to talk to that you learn more about problem solving and you learn more about yourself than what's in the textbooks. Yeah. So I'm not really sure that the label of commerce or human resource or philosophy, all of those things matter, but I can only quote so many things from those textbooks. But the problem solving that I went through, whether it was trying to get to the Brook on Thursday night or whether it was, (laughs) you know, sitting in the right spot in class or following a really good professor around, um, I got more out of university doing that than- Sounds like you were
0: an account guy in university too. I mean, I had angles. (laughs) Yeah. So you have a unique perspective from having worked on both sides of the agency, on the client side, from being VP and partner at Revolve to being COO at Triangle. What have you learned by spending time
1: on both sides of the coin? So full disclosure, I was close to 20 years in the advertising business and then made the decision myself almost two years ago now to change gears. Yeah. So my time with Revolve was... A lot of the highlights of my life existed within that 20 years. It was really, really a great experience for me from coming up as a kid who really didn't know what I was doing. I just knew that I had an appreciation for the work that was being done um, to growing up in that space. You know, I was, Revolve gave me the opportunity to do, to live the life that I wanted to live outside of work.
0: And working under, I, I would say one of the, one of the greatest ad guys in the maritime, I right? had great. I,
1: mean. I had great mentors. So I started with. For anybody who doesn't know, I started with Phil Otto was the yeah. one who who we had met. We we obviously had a good connection, and his partner at the time was Matthew Allen, who's still there working with Phil, and they were tremendous uh, men to be around. Yeah. Um, I learned different things from both of them. Then there was a stretch that Nelson Angel was uh, an integral part of the company, and I learned a different skill set from him entirely. And then now uh, there's been some major changes at Revolve, but I also had a short stint working with Marty Stevens who brought in a totally different perspective. And we often played these games where we would try to remember all of the people that we worked with, uh, and especially Christina Bradshaw and I, who she was one of my day one co-workers as well. We would play this game and try to remember everybody and the mark that they left on us. And while we couldn't remember everybody who came through the doors at Revolve, it's a really cool industry in that everybody brings something different. Everybody's yeah. so creative. They have their own style. You just remember something about everybody and they leave a mark on you. Yeah, it's a movable feast advertising. I think, I, I will say, like, yeah. I think on the agency side, we felt... Like our job was both the most fun and the most difficult. And I think there's an error on the agency side where you you want clients to align with you because you feel all the work you put in and the professional people you surround yourself with and the creatives and the strategy and digital experts and media you're bringing recommendations to the client that you feel are right and you'd like to, them to buy it on the client service side my job was to sell it and selling things is not easy and especially if you're a creative person selling things probably doesn't come naturally um, and i embrace that job and I really, really enjoyed doing it. And I feel maybe there's a little bit of a gap there now in the in the agency world as, I have, as I've stepped back from yeah. it and I look at it. And I think there's a huge opportunity for people to come up and recognize how important being able to take a really good idea and a really good strategy and sell it through to somebody. And I think I've developed a better understanding on the client side of how difficult it is to take something that's disruptive and push it through to not just... The world but to the other people who have to be accountable to the outcome yeah and um, the bigger the organization the more difficult that is the yeah. more layers to the onion the more difficult it is to sell a really good idea through those different levels of management and ownership
0: how much does confidence come into that so when you you know when you guys have decided what it is you're going to do and what you're going to pitch and it's like okay mike go sell this I mean, this is where, you know, I often say this with regard to agencies, like everybody, creative directors, account people, we, they have so many broad skills There's so many things you can pull from. Where do you, where does your head go when I ask that? Like when you're going to present something and, you know, everybody
1: in the office is like, good luck. Confidence. Yeah. Is mandatory. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you can come in really sheepish and say, hey, maybe you'll like this kind of if you, if you sort of feeling what I'm feeling, none of that's going to work. No. But I've certainly been extremely almost overconfident with the quality of an idea and had it left on the cutting room floor as well. So, you know, I think the biggest asset is understanding the objectives like really knowing what's going to move the needle here for you is it a particular aesthetic do you need to be better than your competition in certain areas what's going to really whether it's shareholders or other owners or customers what do they really want from you and give us the opportunity to bring that to life yeah and I think confidence stems from really knowing your client I was really really lucky to have some clients who grew quite a bit um under my tenure with them right Um, that That'll I do it. Take just a small degree of credit Go ahead. Uh, is all I would ever take from that but but I, I got to learn who they were like deep in their fabric and, yeah. and touring their plants and meeting their people and and so you could filter out the ideas that were long shots and really focusing on the things that would move the needle for them yeah. and I think that's where the confidence comes from more than anything and maybe, maybe the advertising industry sometimes is not set up for that you know you have these RFPs where you have two years plus one optional and can you really get to know somebody in that amount of time? You need to be able to ride the waves a little bit, the good times and the bad, and, and have some mistakes and be able to take bullets for each other on both sides. You know, the agencies are certainly going to make mistakes. Clients are far from perfect. Being able to stick with it, yeah, I think is is what breeds confidence.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's consuming, right? When you get into a project, it's always interesting because so one day you're not even on your radar. The next day, you're tasked with this project that you would literally know nothing about. You know, this happens to us all the time. We have to get up to speed on what these people are doing, what they're really doing. Yeah.
1: And if you could skip that, you know, if you Uh, just really knew what they were all about. And if we did- Well, everybody
0: skips that part. You know what I mean? Like, not, like the client doesn't, I I don't think in a lot of cases, they don't really realize how much homework you have to do to get to a place where you're actually speaking uh, intelligently about them.
1: And then probably- The scapegoat is the creative brief or whatever form of briefing you get, because that was something I would say at times I took a ton of pride in and there's other times I didn't. And the times that you don't, it often bites you in the ass. Um, And when somebody isn't properly briefed on a project, whether they're, it doesn't matter which side of the coin, it doesn't even matter which service they're providing. If they don't really know what they're trying to accomplish, the odds of them doing an incredible job, let alone a passable job, are low.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's as Bob Dylan says, know your song well before you start singing, I guess. You were VP and partner at Revolve for nine years. This spans back to 2002. I don't know if your math is right there, but nine years for sure. All right. The landscape of advertising and marketing has significantly changed over that time. What was it like to be a front seat for those major changes?
1: I would go to a limb to say every decade says like refers back to the good old days. Hey, we wish it was like this. We've all watched Mad Men. Anybody in the agency uh, world would certainly have consumed that show and said, oh, I wish we could I wish we could work like that and and operate like that. I would say at the start, was we had traditional media and, and certainly the media dollars were not as fractured as they are now. Yeah, it's the move- incredible, isn't it? It's unbelievable. We used to have very similar budgets and a huge amount would go into production and there was ratios for it. How much would go into production? How much would go into the creative? How much would go into the strategy slash administration client service? It was pretty simple. And you would buy your magazine ads or newsprint or billboards or TV or radio and off you would go to the races. And you would have the opportunity because there is the same amount of budget to do either some throwaway or some fun or something a little bit outlandish that might get a separate media placement where you could say, hey, we need a killer photograph. We need an unbelievable line. Like we need something here that's really going to stand out and get people's attention. And the move to digital, while I think advertisers probably provide more value to an individual consumer now than ever before, because you can so finitely target them. The budgets are razor thin for everybody involved in the process of creating something. So your creative teams are squeezed, um, your partners are squeezed whether they're doing photography or recording, audio, whatever it Sounds might be. Sounds familiar. Your media budget is sliced a hundred different ways instead of three. And it's a real challenge because on the client side as well, it's not like there's more money available necessarily.
0: So in that environment, what advice do you have for people that are, you know, working with agencies, companies that are working with agencies or not working with agencies, but are faced with this dilemma? Like
1: Just understand people. I was a, I'd like to keep things simple. I was not ever really big on data or research or something, maybe to my own fault. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you understand people and what motivates them, then you can provide value. And if you can do- And that
0: worked for you, that, that was your style and that was a proven track record.
1: Yeah, it doesn't work for everybody working with me. I'm sure one or two people who tuned into this podcast would probably turn me out off mm-hmm. um right away but i was okay with that i think we're all humans uh we all have our strengths and our weaknesses but if i want you to buy the sheet of paper that's in front of me i need to understand well what do you need the paper for you don't yeah. have to hold ink is it for pencil right. is it got to be waterproof whatever it might be and then eventually we can get down to what's really really important to you and um you would definitely buy that piece of paper yeah. but we're impatient yeah, um, and people tend to chase the next bright shiny object whether yeah. it be somebody to work with or a new tactic or a different method to communicate really the same basic thing we've been trying to tell people from the start it is, just looks shinier and i moment. have this thing of value or i can take your thing of value and really make it sing for the people who matter just give me a chance
0: yeah i mean my inbox is full of that stuff right
1: so do you have any predictions as to what the next major shift in advertising will be and what it might look like I mean I wish I had my finger a little bit more on the pulse to actually answer this intelligently but I do think just understanding human beings like here we are coming out of uh, a really strange three or a four-year era and people are looking for both comfort and discomfort yeah and I think anybody who has something to sell right now is not that different than when they're selling toothpaste and said, Hey, we'll make your teeth brighter, whiter, and we'll do it faster. And it's easier. And it tastes great. Like none of those things ever really change in advertising. It's just how do you present it in a way that gets people's attention? Because there's no make no mistake about it. Like you absolutely need to get people's attention in advertising. So if there's a change coming, how do you get on people's radar faster? I love so one thing that I always tell people is let's try to create uh, repeat loyalty customers. You need something to get their attention out of the gates, but then how do you keep them? You know, how do you make it so that it's dead simple for somebody to buy from you and then buy from you again and tell their friends about it and then feel a sense of community with the product that they're buying? If we sit down and we talk about the favorite brands that we love to support, it's not necessarily the individual products. It's the way they make you feel. Yes. And I know that's cliche, but that really is the root of all of what we're trying to do, yeah, is really make people feel special or something different for participating in the community.
0: It's it's interesting. Uh, two things that uh, kind of come to mind as you're speaking there. Uh, a direct example. So we earlier this year we did a big campaign for the Marriott Harbor Front. Okay, great. So we you know we shot photography and, and video. And as I go through my day, I'm reading an article in the New York Times. I see our ad from the Marriott, uh, CNN. I see our ad, uh, all Nova Scotia, and I'm seeing all. these digital placements with these ads this buy across many platforms many that i'm not even on That's probably there and i thought wow that's really interesting how targeted that is and that i'm the target so it is you know i I don't know who how media buying has changed that's an algorithm that's taking care of that with the what you're inputting but i I just i thought man that's You know, that media buying is not my, not my parents' media buying.
1: Yeah, no, it definitely is not. And there's great vendors for that to say, okay, hey, we're going to find your James Ingrams out in the world. Yeah. And we're going to make sure that he sees this everywhere he goes. Because I'm in the demographic, right? I'm a target. There's sure. no question. Yeah, any of us can go on. You know, uh, whether it's a pair of sneakers or a shirt that you like or coffee that you want to drink, it yeah. doesn't really matter what it is. If the advertisers intelligent enough to get a really crack media team behind them, uh, those ads will follow you around. Yeah, for a long time. Yeah. But that's where I actually think that advertising provides more value to people than ever before. So while that might yes. feel sneaky, I love. It. I don't want to get ads for senior citizens diapers no. or or for newborn babies or things along those lines my kids are 12 and 7 I'm not yeah. quite in the adult diaper phase yet so I don't <laughs> want to see ads for that stuff no. you know give me ads for the new tailor-made driver or the next fly rod or uh, a cold plunge tub and I'll pay attention yeah. Yeah. So I think smarter advertisers are saying, hey, like there's no reason to- That's put- all I
0: see actually now is cold plunge tubs yeah. because that's what I've been searching, but yeah. We curate that stuff, but oh, it's yeah.
1: it's nice to I'm asking things. for it. Right. So it's like, do you need to put a Super Bowl ad out there if you're a cold plunge tub? Or would the cold plunge tub people say, look, the people who are interested in going into ice cold water also do X, Y, and Z. So yeah. we don't need to broadcast to 5 million people. I'd rather broadcast to the 15,000 who are likely to buy this thing. Exactly. So... You know, I think people will talk to me about marketing all the time just because of my background and and they'll be like, oh, I was talking about a thing. And then all of a sudden it showed up on my phone. It's like, well, if you're talking about it, you're interested in it. And it's not necessarily that your phone is listening, but it's that all of the other behaviors that you exhibit in your life and the 200 times you pick up your phone in a day, you are just creating a pattern that the advertiser recognizes. So they're like, hey, you probably want a cold plunge tub. You're asking for it. You are asked. I just don't have a problem with that. I don't want to be bombarded with adult diapers.
0: I want to be bombarded with stuff. If I'm going to be bombarded and I have no choice but it, I want to be bombarded with stuff
1: that I actually want to buy. It just annoyingly extracts a lot of money from my wallet. It does. Um, they Discipline become very good at being uh, friction free. So I think if anything, like if Amazon has made any kind of dent in the world, it's that it needs to be dead simple to buy your product. When it's dead simple to buy your product, all of a sudden you can look at your credit card statement at the end of the month and like Jesus, what did I just yeah, do here? Yeah. You know, it's so simple yeah. to buy things. So if uh, if there's client side people here listening, if your product is at all difficult to buy, you should probably be wondering how do I reduce the complexity? Yeah, it's, it's of not going to
0: work in this arena, is it? So you have won uh, many awards for your work in advertise in the advertising industry. Are there any projects that stand out as your favorite or one that uh, you are most proud of? Any memorable experiences you can share with us?
1: Uh, you know, awards are funny uh, because they are a huge reward for the whole team that does the work. Um, We always looked at the awards and we're like, yeah, but does it really tie into the objectives that the client wanted? So I think the ones that were my favorite were the ones where the particular client that we were working for really, really benefited from the work. Uh, There's a story that I often tell because it gets people's attention, which is maybe the advertising bones in my body. Um, One of my favorite projects that we worked on was a company called Honey Huts which that was uh, a great campaign uh, yeah. it was incredible so like we great came campaign. in it was a it was a friend who came in sean right sean, sean his yeah. brought the brought the company forward and he was going to call it something very drab east coast something sure or other. and um through that process we developed this honey huts brand and he bought all these yellow units and we put these graphics on the side like poo loves honey now serving one through two yeah um all these funny lines we were we had a great creative team eric miller worked on it and it's an incredible copy gem- gentleman named graham north uh, yeah I so remember the writing. graham and we got i got a text from sean he had gotten a voicemail from this parisian lady who was new to halifax and we can't play it here on the podcast but she was overwhelmingly happy and laughing and she had called the 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 line for honey hot's like book uh, unit and and she was laughing and carrying on about how she had seen this portable restroom with a smiley face on it and it made her day better even though she didn't need to use the washroom. And we still use this audio clip on a regular basis. I'd actually love to find this person. Yeah. Um, So here we took what was otherwise, I won't use like the typical puns, Otherwise, it's relatively boring, service-based- A necessary evil. A necessary product. Yeah. And we made it fun. We made it interesting. People noticed them. You can't go anywhere in the city without seeing one of those yellow porta-potties. So they had a good, solid business. They obviously need to service their customers. They need to be able to pick up and drop off and service and clean and and do all of their their stuff. But we trusted that Sean was going to do that. So then we put a brand behind it that they could also live up to. Yeah. And I think that they have created uh, a pretty strong business as a result. It was super fun to work on. How
0: did that, can you go, do you remember back to inception? Like how did that actually, those
1: ideas, those tags, how did that happen? So it starts with a good relationship. So I think we talked about it earlier, just knowing your client and developing a good relationship with them where he was like, okay, uh, I'm willing to be pushed. We used to always ask the question on a scale of one to 10, like how hard do you want to be pushed? There's going to be certain organizations, be the government or big organizations that are going to say, yeah, like I'm a three or a four, which is fine. So don't put toilet humor in front of them. Uh, but Sean was a nine or a 10 and he wanted to be different and he wanted the business to succeed. And we thought that we could do that. with because he's a
0: serial that, entrepreneur.
1: Right. Yeah. And and taking an approach that nobody else was taking. And those, I think, are maybe increasingly difficult to find. Yeah. So then you find this industry where, you know, there's a lot of people making money in industries that other people don't want to work in. Yeah. It's not necessarily sexy, but it ended up being something that was really fun for people to work on. And I think we could have ruined it with, let's say, a really shitty brief.
0: So Sean gives you the 9 to 10... Rating, go ahead, mm. push me. You go back to the team and you say we got the green light to push this, and then you go to Eric and his partner, and they start. How does that happen? Oh, we, we almost had
1: to hold them back. Uh,
0: so you know, did you get? Yeah, I mean, that, I've seen that reaction in creatives where they know they can go.
1: When I role. when I would work with other people on the client service team, I would always say, look the the brief process is your opportunity to weigh in on the creative because unless you're logging in and and going into InDesign or Illustrator or you're going behind the camera your job is done at least or on hold at that point your job like give people a brief where if your creative team is sitting forward in their chair and you need to stop them from sharing ideas off the cuff during the brief you've done a good job right If people are looking at their watch or flipping to the back page to see what the budget is, you've not written a good brief. And so I don't remember the details of necessarily how Honey Huts started that conversation, but I do remember needing to tell Graham and Eric like, okay, like enough, enough. We have more than enough to present here. how many
0: do you think you came away with tags like the the original
1: list? Yeah. I think they almost ran all of them because we didn't present multiple options. We thought we, they were so sold. Eric and Graham were so sold on that direction and we felt like we had uh, the confidence of the room to be able to say this is both hilarious incredible and is going to do great things in the space that we didn't put in a bunch of other mediocre options and I think that was one of the things that always disappointed me was the amount of decent work that ends up on the cutting room floor because of that expectation that you would come with three or four totally different ideas what tends to And it just blends, Uh, you know, that client, you could put it on repeat. A client would say, I love number one, and I like this about number two, and I like this about number three. So I'm just wondering, could you take this and this and this and bring it all together? Right. And it's almost like we, as much as people on the agency side hate hearing that feedback that, oh, we're just going to blend these concepts. I think the door is basically open and kicked open repeatedly for that kind of feedback. Where it'd be like, there's always good elements of any idea.
0: So now, Triangle Strategies, looking to develop opportunities in the Canadian healthcare industry, which is something that seems so needed at the moment. Can you give us some information in what it is you do as COO there? Yeah.
1: Um, so I made the leap from Agency World, of which I was a partner at Revolve, and now I'm COO at Triangle Strategies. Congratulations. Working, thank you. Uh, working with my friend Robert Zedd. Healthcare is a huge focus for us. Uh, Robert, That's a
0: big name. That 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 man has been he's, at the forefront of this city and this province for a long time.
1: Yeah, he has. And our families go back generationally, which is kind of both fun and convenient. And it's, Yes, uh, I it's didn't a, know that. That's great. It's a privilege to work with them for sure. I really enjoy it. Got a great dynamic. Healthcare is absolutely Robert's focus. He's very connected across the country in that way. That's how he started, right? Yeah. 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 And so I try to be in service of that. I think what I really enjoy about my role now is I get to lean into a lot of different businesses. So in the agency world, I thrived on the diversity of having a lot of different clients that we would service. And now in my current role, we have a handful of different businesses of which I love in different ways that I get to work on. And I get to work on more than just telling the world about an idea, but actually getting my hands in there and trying to help that idea, uh, bear fruit, which, um, has been very satisfying so far.
0: So you're happy? You're happy with this new this new role?
1: Excited? Yeah, but I mean, humans are kind of foolish and we're always trying to push forward without yes. really a, an agenda and a plan. Yeah. I very much enjoy what I'm doing now, but I'm constantly looking off on the horizon to say what's going to be that next thing.
0: Does it feel a little more entrepreneurial for you? Like, do you feel like the, uh, whatever um, change is too strong, but you know what I mean? You're at a, an agency and you're in a role. Is this a little bit more, you can, uh, spread your wings a little bit, kind yeah, of I really think, ply your own experience? Yeah, I think the blessing and a curse. Yeah. So uh,
1: Revolve was very stable in my time there. Yes. Phil built a strong business that was growing every year and all the people who added to it uh, were helping it along. We certainly had difficult times. We had times of contraction and things along those lines, but Revolve did give me a little bit of a warm blanket to work within and I think now I'm more exposed to, and even in my transition I, I didn't, I wasn't fully employed when I left. So so you start to realize what it takes to, to build a successful business yeah. and you know I still will regularly get together with Phil and I've told him how often or I've often told him how much I admire um, his ability to be able to support the amount of people and the amount of clients that Revolve supported um, and I would be one of those so over the last two years I think has been a really interesting lesson for me in that it is not easy to to run a business, no. uh, much less a profitable, successful, long-term business. And some of the veneer uh, has come off of that to be a little bit more obvious to me. So now I look at any business owner, managing partner, um, and I have a, a higher level of appreciation and empathy for what they're doing.
0: Yeah. And and I don't know if you find this now, but like it's it, the tapes never stop playing.
1: I say, I'm sending these guys
0: texts at like 11 o'clock at night. I, I walk the dog at night. This is sort of a, the end of the day. out, And I do really good thinking then. So then I'll, you know, I'll start sending messages, but it's so you can't, I mean, it's just, you live it right. Because there is nobody coming to save you. There's nothing, there's no protection, you know, it's, you do it or it doesn't get done.
1: This is where it gets really interesting because I think we attract people like us to work with us. So, you know, I think entrepreneurs are, and founders um, have their quirks. For yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, and as you build your business, being able to offset your strengths and your natural tendencies is both difficult as a founder, because you don't want to be challenged. That's why you started your own business. Yes, But it's also really important yeah, to be able to point. take a step back and say, you know, I can't do this by myself. No,
0: I mean, that's been reflective of my journey, right? In a sense. So it's, uh, it's not easy hiring the right people, especially I think the smaller the organization, uh, the harder it is because you work so closely to together. And if you're not like really on the same page, it's tough. Yeah. So I'm blessed, like with the the team that I have around me, I feel really, really blessed.
1: Well, I mean, you look at your, so, so for anybody who doesn't go back as far as James and I, um, it would be over 20 years. Yes. Uh, since I think it was when we were on the golf course together and you gave yeah. me a business card yeah. that was die cut in the shape of a camera. If I don't, if that's I'm not right. mistaken, that's right. And we realized that we, here we are in the same industry. Yeah. And, um, the early 2000s I and think. here we still are, you know, you still, you've operated yeah. a business that's growing and it's changing. We used to take pictures on Polaroid and then yes. film and we've traveled with that kind of stuff. Yeah. And now here we are in. Yeah,
0: we've had a couple of fun times at uh, going through airports. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Um, but here you're still doing, you know, pumping out similar quality, maintaining uh, uh, a reputation that is really, really high in this yeah. market and, and doing a job well. And that's, you know, there's not a lot of people out there doing that.
0: How has your history as an athlete impacted how you work in the advertising industry? And are there lessons you pull from uh, to help with that? Right.
1: So I was a curler. Our yeah. Competitive curler. So we'll put athletes in air quotes because uh, curlers are absolutely athletes. Oh, now. yeah. And I have no uh, issue with that. I was fortunate to be on the front end of that cusp where um, there were still some ashtrays and things along those lines on the. You have a
0: history of people curling that weren't athletes. That's absolutely true. But that's changed, has it now? You guys are.
1: But I did get to go to the Briar twice uh, and represent Nova Scotia, which was a a huge uh, accomplishment and a a major dream for me. And I didn't do it until I was in my 30s. I was 32 for the first Briar. So the dream kind of had faded and then came back. I think most people have some kind of athletic pursuit in their life. You know, there are gonna be people who are artists and it's creative first and that's totally fine. I've interviewed hundreds of young candidates coming out of school. And I've always wondered why the thing that you're most passionate about lives at the very bottom of your resume Interesting. as like this little interests. Like, oh, you were varsity volleyball or you did all this elite hockey or something along those lines. Like that probably is more important in terms of your skill set than your shift at Tim Hortons or your stint with a call center. I always gravitated maybe unfairly to um, athletes. When I was hiring, because you have this sense of discipline, you have this understanding of what it takes to be really, really good at something. You have this desire. Um, You're competitive too, usually. Just to do things when people aren't aren't watching. Yeah. You know that just that knowledge that if you want to be really, really great at something, it takes those 10,000 hours, and it takes yes. a ton of work, and the work's not always comfortable or fun, and sometimes it's a grind. Oh. And I think that translates really, really. Nice nicely into business. I wouldn't reserve it just for athletics. I think somebody who wants to be a painter or wants to draw or do any kind of creative pursuit, it's the same thing. It's it still 10,000 hours.
0: It's interesting. It's interesting. I raise uh, three sons and two of them are, are grown now and they're both played, you know, competitive baseball, competitive basketball. You know, they weren't they weren't going on to play that. Uh, Redford played some university. Hogan played a little bit. But my point is, but he played high level baseball. My point is the, the residue from that, I can't. See it in their approach to things. They will not quit, and they have another gear uh, by times with regard to getting things done. Um, Doesn't always mean the dishes get done, but when they were here, but they they just refuse to give in. You know, I watched Hogan go through this in in law school. The first year is extremely difficult, right? It's law school, so it's very difficult. But he wouldn't give in. He kept getting it dug and. I think that that has to do with the years of trying to make a team and, and uh, being in the box and trying to get a hit and going to practice and showing up
1: and doing all those things. It has an effect. It absolutely, on occasion, come easily to. Yeah. But there's nobody at a high level of a sport. But you don't
0: usually give a shit about those things.
1: No. And you don't work hard enough. So there's nobody at really, really high levels that is just born lucky, born talented, that just rolls out of bed and does incredible things. I just don't think those people exist at all. I think there's a a huge amount of work behind the scenes that you just don't always see. like That overnight success that took 20 years to get there. And I think whether it's sport or business or anything along those lines, just that understanding of putting in the work and then getting that satisfaction from it that you never forget. Yeah. You know, like I, I will never forget the time spent with close friends of mine in the curling ring, even times when they really pissed me off. Yeah. And then when we won uh, and that moment that we won, you just, we had so many shared moments together of both highs and lows Mm -hmm. and just that unbelievable rush of joy and dopamine and things along those lines that sports provides. It just, it teaches you persistence that, you know, I just stick with it. Just keep putting one foot in front of another and you'll get there.
0: You're also a vet at cold plunging, a recent passion of mine. I can tell you that, and you're a big part of that. Um, What benefits have you found through this practice and have those benefits steeped into your professional life as well?
1: Uh, So I started in the pandemic, Uh, I wanted something, I turned 40, uh, the spring of uh, the pandemic and, and that winter that preceded it. So 2021, I guess I wanted uh, a challenge. I think we generally are too comfortable as a, as a race. And so I was looking for something that... I hear that. I would be regularly uncomfortable with yes but that I would be proud of myself for and my sporting competitive days outside of just like playing with friends was sports kind of passing me by yeah and I was introduced to this idea of going into the cold water primarily as a way to reduce inflammation and so when I continue to go and I have been in the cold water I tried to add it up before this uh session with you it's hundreds of yes. times every single time I go to do it I don't want to to do it. No. You know, I feel uncomfortable. I'm talking myself in and out yes. of it. Negotiation. Oh my God, it's brutal. Um, but <laughs> it's only a couple of minutes. Yeah. And I come out feeling uh, like the best version of myself. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, it takes hours in the gym. It takes a lifetime to be able to create the type of person you want to be. Going into the cold water, living in a cold climate felt like something really, really simple, not easy, but very, very simple to do that would make me feel better. Everybody's going to find their own reasons. You can go, you can look it up, you can read Wim Hof, you can can get together with friends and do it for 30 seconds or for 10 minutes. You can go to a Nordic spa, you can find a cold lake, you can put a tub down. It really doesn't matter what your own individual reason is to do it. Yeah. But I do... I'm very biased, but I do think it's worth trying just to see what kind of change it can create for you. Yeah. What inspires you these days? Uh, That's a great question. Um, I take inspiration from a ton of things. I've always loved the outdoors and my appreciation of things that are more natural and less, less influenced by humans is, is climbing. So people who have quit their jobs or changed gears and they've decided to pursue something that they're very, very passionate about. Even if it doesn't come with a fancy title or a huge salary or something along those lines, I am taking inspiration from that. You know, I've got a friend, uh, Lee Frazier, who runs a business called Live Life Intense out in Marguerite, Cape Breton. Great. And we've been able to do a couple really fun type two adventures, whether it's snowshoeing in the winter across the highlands, we hike the seawall trail, and I see the work that he he's doing and then alongside of that the people who are attracted to what he's doing and doing similar things themselves. People who are making a real mark in their own world in rural Nova Scotia by leaning into something that they're just really passionate about whether it's archery or paddling or hiking or getting people out into those parts of the world. Capturing that on content and putting it on YouTube, taking great photos. A lot of these people are not making six figure salaries doing it, but they might have four or five ways to make 15 or $20,000. And I just think that's such a refreshing way to live, to be able to do, we were always told growing up, like find something you love and work at that and you'll never work a day in your life but it felt like bullshit frankly yeah. like yeah. N- nobody was selling that to me at, in my like commerce time well, at, they might have been St. selling Paris. it they weren't buying it and yeah. and to, to pursue that path felt like a degree of failure yeah. you know so I think now when I look at people and they're like hey I love to do X I love fly fishing so how do I both pursue that passion but then also find a way to make my own mark in that industry I find that really really inspiring and people who are opting to pursue that path instead of I'm going to work 30 years in a career and I'm going to take my retirement check and then I'm actually going to live the life that I want. Um, I find those people tend to be extremely humble because they're also dealing with all the shit that comes with it. It's certainly not easy to take less money and, and yeah. do something that nobody else is doing. But um, I find that really, really inspiring. Yeah,
0: it's great. And you know, all this content that's coming out, the timing uh, with everything, the advent of technology and everything. And, and a lot of these younger companies, emerging venture companies in Nova Scotia, you know, the word's getting out. I know, I, know I, I often wonder how much of that is influencing people coming here.
1: I mean, I think it comes down to the expectation and the reputation of the region. So if you decide to pack up from Toronto and you want to come to Nova Scotia. Go to Marguerite. I mean, you probably don't want to live down in the deep south end or north end and just have a small version of toronto you no. know you're going to look for something completely different and then you're going to look to make your own mark on that different thing mm-hmm. and i think as long as you're doing that with as we talked about before a sense of purpose and a sense of responsibility to the environment and the place yeah. that you've decided to move to
0: last question what advice would you give to a young creative getting started in the advertising field
1: i don't know how much airtime for this uh, episode this is going to take but this is yeah. something that i actually do want to focus on is because you and I have talked and I think that there's this, there's a void now in the industry um, and somebody listening to it, I hope Somebody listening to this, I hope they see the opportunity because I loved my job for 20 years. I came up through the advertising industry as somebody on the client service side, and that was something that exposed me to a lot of great opportunities. Yes, I felt properly paid. I had flexibility. You know, I think that there's this stigma with the advertising agency that our advertising industry where you're working five to nine was always our joke, and not nine to five. I know there was many, many years where if somebody stayed till. 5.30, you're like, hey, what's going on? Yeah. Uh, so I hope that people see the opportunity that exists within that industry to give yourself a career where you can turn commerce into art a little bit and you can work with these fascinating people. I've worked with so many interesting people, both within the walls that revolve, with partners that we would hire, with clients. I get exposed to so many different industries and technologies and ideas that I think, even if it's not a 20-year career for you, uh, Uh, as something that you should seriously consider instead of getting into a single channel business, which there's nothing wrong with going in and deciding, hey, I'm going to work with a startup or I'm going to work in this, I'm going to be an accountant or whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. But I do not see a huge group of both men and women coming into this industry with this desire to really do the client service job properly, to be able to sell and organize and take um, a creative department, that's usually wild and all over the place and to be able to harness their energy and put it into uh, a client's objectives. And I think I'm biased. I love that job. Yeah. And I don't understand why why that particular role isn't attracting more really talented, smart, ambitious people. And I find it a little disappointing that it that's is. not the case. And I'm glad it's not my job in an HR department or within an agency now to try to find more people like that. But I hope that that particular role is being properly advertised and communicated and and, and compensated. So if I was going to give somebody advice getting started in the field, I would say, you know, like just really push yourself to understand people. Uh, don't build your own book, you know, don't, don't only focus on the ideas that you love, is just really understand the people that you're that you're working with, the people that you're selling the idea through to, and the people who are ultimately buying a product. And I think if you really get it back, if you simplify it down to just understanding human beings and what motivates them, then there's incredible opportunities to both do uh, creative work that you're proud of and to develop relationships that are meaningful for you. And you'd end up with a career that you'd look back on and say, I'm really glad
0: man this has been great i uh i know you're busy and i really appreciate taking the time i mean i got
1: lost time for you but
0: Uh, that's it for us thanks again bye for now we really love hearing these stories from our creative community so stay tuned as we will be inviting more folks to come and chat with us this podcast has been brought to you by jive photographic productions From branding images to droning to podcasts, we are your one-stop shop for multimedia. Want to learn more? Check out jivephotographic.com. Until next time, keep it creative.